Repent. It's a heavy word. We hear it shouted from the pulpit of a tent revival. We hear it whispered to us by spiritual leaders. We may even hear it hissed at us. But what does repentance mean? And how do we go about the act of repentance? In my research for this episode, I stumbled upon a WikiHow page dedicated to quote-unquote how to repent. I'm not going to lie, it was helpful advice, but as we heard in our previous episode, good advice doesn't usually lead to lasting change. When considering repentance, past associations can make it sound accusatory, spoken as a command to feel shame deep enough to spark change. This is a works-based mia culpa, or my fault, type of action. The way that repentance has been shared makes us think that it's a man-made practice. However, verses like 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Luke 15.7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. They all speak to repentance as a step that is in line with salvation. So if that's the case, what is repentance? That's a great question because I think the different ways in which you can approach it, you can look at, for instance, the prevalence of the term in, let's say, the New Testament. And we know that the central message of Jesus, if you have to summarize what the ministry of Jesus was all about, it is the message of the kingdom of God. This is Dr. Ante Jeroncic, professor of ethics and theology and chair of Department of Theology and Christian Philosophy at Andrews University. He also happens to have pastored at my church when I was a child. Dr. Ante is passionate about providing an accurate understanding of repentance. As a matter of fact, the message that we ought to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this is in Matthew 4, 17. In many other places we have this. Paul has been preaching this and other disciples as well. And the reason I mentioned that is because when Jesus is using that term, repent, it is a, a beautiful Greek word, metanoete. And really, when you look at it etymologically and what that word really means, it primarily refers to turning around in one's thinking. Right? That's what it is about. Here's a kingdom of God. Here is a new reality in the person of Jesus, a new set of uh, visions, promises, hopes, obligations. And in the light of that, we are now called to turn around in our thinking. So that is what it means really in its core. This new definition of repentance changes things. At its core, repentance isn't the Herculean effort to be wholly changing our lives from the outside in. True repentance is changing our thinking. It's inviting us to deconstruct the psychology behind our actions. And as a result of reconstruction, experience change. And while I don't think that this exhausts what repentance is all about, it certainly always implies this, this cognitive component, right? We are we invited to reconsider how we're approaching life, who we are in the light of Christ's revelation, and then in, in the presence of Jesus, 
begin to look at reality and ourselves, what our lives are all about in a new light. So I would say this is a good starting point. It doesn't exhaust what repentance means, but in its original sense, this is one of its key components for sure. To repent is to change our mind for the better. So an alcoholic's decision to quit drinking, someone's decision to go to therapy, an individual who realizes their worldview is damaging to a group of people, the shift towards a healthy lifestyle that is sustainable for you, a person in ED recovery who can now comfortably eat their trigger foods, these are all forms of repentance. It is about changing our minds away from narrow, destructive thinking. We have buried the word so deeply within the religious lexicon that we often forget people around the world who have never known the name of Jesus repent on an hourly basis. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. This means that still small voice that exists in the back of our mind, encouraging us to turn away from our old thought process and live in growth and peace is, in fact, God. Not only that, but the verse reminds us that these good things come from an unchanging God. His desire for us to be emotionally, spiritually, and physically healthy is unchanging, independent of whether or not you please him or even acknowledge him. Now, this doesn't mean we should take his goodness and run, but an invitation to meet him. The further we explore repentance, the more we recognize its nuance. When you have different definitions, they might be incompatible, and sometimes they are complementary. So for me, another way to define repentance would be, which is really in, in tune with what I've just mentioned before, would be to say that repentance is a new self-knowledge that derives from a new God. Recognize the order. The act of repentance comes after we get a clear picture of the character of God and the magnitude of salvation. Chapter 3 of Ellen G. White's Steps to Christ is dedicated to reconstructing repentance and says it like this, quote, The Bible does not teach that the sinner must repent before he can heed the invitation of Christ. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Matthew eleven forty eight. It is the virtue that goes forth from Christ, that leads to genuine repentance, end quote. In some way, we understand something about God. And in the light of understanding something about God, any aspect of God, his beauty, his power, his holiness, his, his will for us, that a new self-knowledge comes about. So in, in many ways, repentance is a type of self-knowledge that comes as a result of, of who God is, of our understanding of who God is. And um, there is no repentance without a new understanding of who we are. We understand something about our past. We understand something about our actions. We understand something about who we are. And that in, in light of that, we are now led to ask for forgiveness, change our lives, and all of that. So this connection between repentance and self-knowledge is a very important connection because self-knowledge, if you read the literature in psychology or just common sense, we know this, right? Self-knowledge is something that profoundly eludes us. And I would say that God wants to break through these 
barriers of self-conceptions, self-justifications, all these various ways in which we close ourselves off to spiritual realities. God has to break through that and show us who, who we really are. It makes sense. To put it another way, if we're going to repent, we need to know what we're repenting of. If my life is burdened by my pride, which prevents me from admitting that I'm wrong, then I need to be aware of that. So how do we become aware? The closer we come to God means he offers the exposure we need to identify what mindsets need to change and then offers us the strength and forgiveness to be consistent in that change. I would say then briefly that repentance and the need for repentance uh, really reflects the human condition after the fall, right? And and if you define the human condition after the fall, again, you can say it includes these two elements, right? The turning away of our minds from God, therefore Jesus' message, now we have to look at reality in a new way, and the hardening of our hearts. So this affective and the cognitive dimension. So repentance always includes these things, right? It, it is on the one hand, it's the cognitive aspect. It is a, a new understanding of God and a new understanding of ourselves. And as a result of that, there is a emotional affective component to that. We are heartbroken. We are remorseful. We feel sorry for that. We, we seek forgiveness. So I think however we approach and define repentance, it has to include at least at its very basic, these two dimensions. As a result of the fall, we turn our minds from God and harden our hearts. Therefore, repentance is the reversal of our thoughts. Isn't this the reality, though? Think back to Eden. Satan tricked Eve by planting false doubt that made her change her mind. Everything we do is an active reversal of the fall. Why would repentance be any different? that even this has become reversed in its purpose. Repentance has become another word for works, changing behaviors and habits and desires in order to convince a punitive God we're sorry. Rather than a self-aware humility, it becomes self-flagellation. Think about New Year's resolutions. There is a powerful desire to wake up early, get healthy, change our habits, but by March, we peter off. This is because we're expecting to wake up on January 2nd with a newfound motivation and self-discipline that we may never have been consistent in. The reality is, we're expecting our actions to create internal change, when psychology has proven that internal change creates action. In Eden, it was the internal change in Eve's perception of God that caused the action of eating the fruit. Romans 12, 1 and 2 and all of that, the transformation of our mind, renewal of our mind, is exactly the antidote to what we have in Genesis chapter 3, right? Because the first movement away from God that happens with Adam and Eve happens in their minds. They somehow buy into a lie about God. They buy into a wrong information about God, that God somehow is this supreme being that is denying them full self-actualization. So, so before they engage in that act, before they are willing to buy into what the serpent is saying, the first in their mind have to buy into an idolatrous claim about God, 
It's a wrong conception of God. Now, I have to claim, I have to do, God prevents me from fully becoming myself, in other words, from fully becoming God. That action only makes sense if you have implicitly bought into an idea about God. So this is then the notion, right? The, the same way in which we first turned away from God in our minds, as Dallas Willard once wrote, is it is the same way in which we have to return to God. We have to kind of begin to perceive who God is in a new light. So I think that cognitive dimension is incredibly important. Now, by cognitive, I don't mean to intellectualize at all repentance in any way, because repentance certainly is connected with the, you know, the breaking of the heart and all of that. But I think that there's where it begins. Another way to classify what he's describing is reconstruction. Think back to the first episodes when we deconstructed the image of God. It required self-awareness in how we viewed God and the ripple effects of that image. If our mindset of God was one of a putative celestial being who requires us to grovel and prove to him that he should care about us, then our actions within our life are going to reflect that mindset. When we see God as a loving father, one who is self-sacrificing and just, who wants us to come to him for the chance to grow, then the way we live changes significantly. Repentance is a step in reconstruction because it's an organic altering of the heart. It's a natural step that occurs after we experience salvation. However, we can err on one of two extremes. Viewing repentance as the medieval church shaped it, which was as a tool to control and keep believers in a state of constant shame as a sign of faith, or we ignore sin and view it as a natural impulse. For the last couple of centuries, with the rise of modernity after the Middle Ages and everything, a certain conception of the human being is being presented, um, which can be understood in terms of the autonomous human being, right? We don't need anything. We are self-sufficient. The notion of self-sufficiency is one thing. So we don't need God. We don't need revelation. And a profound rebellion against any notion of human fallenness. The idea that something is wrong with us, that we have to repent of some innate sin, that we are somehow born with an evil bent, that is fundamentally for the last couple of centuries that has been very much being promoted. But there are also other voices and, and some even secular voices who have pointed to the fact that we are driven by instincts and impulses that we don't understand, that we don't know, that we actually, this whole idea of becoming authentic is deeply problematic because we never really have proper self-knowledge. And that something that very often we engage in acts without being aware where we harm others and harm ourselves, that we are very often oblivious as to who we are. So when we look at this, when we look at this kind of opposite sort of viewpoint, that, and we find this today, even in psychology and secular science, that there is something that we have these inclinations towards evil that we don't always understand. So the call to repentance and the emphasizing of repentance means to emphasize this important view of human nature which re includes a rejection of certain modern conceptions of who we are. 
how do we know what happens when human beings promote this autonomy? When they say, I want to do whatever I want, following the pleasure principle or just following the desires of the heart. Well, I would say that Romans chapter one beautifully outlines this. Paul writes about people that did not deem it necessary to regard God, to consider God, but they just follow the inclinations of their heart. And the result of that is idolatry, it is violence, it is destructiveness. So then to uh, refuse repentance, right, means to actually engage in this kind of trajectory of living. This is where our study of repentance can go down a rabbit hole. Once we observe what repentance is, we must also observe the surrounding pieces connected to repentance, one of them being sin. If we see sin as something that is a very natural and organic impulse that's simply the result of our humanity, it can become an impossible yet inevitable force. Or it can become romanticized. We romanticize sin all the time. In doing so, they become plot points character quirks or simple things that make us multidimensional. When viewed in this way, the urgency of repentance paired with how it has been represented through the medieval church and harmful religion can sound punitive. From this perspective, repentance sounds like a guilt trip, a moralistic attempt to make humanity feel bad in order to shackle them to an institutional practice. As a result, there is a rejection of divine authority and a rejection of forgiveness. However, we can look back on our church history episodes to see how this warping of repentance became the norm. That's one way in which repentance is being rebuffed. The refusal of anyone to tell me anything, anyone to I have to give an account for my life, I can live however I want. You know, that's what it means to be authentic and all of that. But the Middle Ages and the way institutionalized uh, Christianity and Christendom operated, we, we had many wrong conceptions of repentance. On the one hand, you have a rejection of repentance as a basic human need because it entails, it is connected to the rejection of God's authority, right, and God's revelation. But then you also, within the Christian community or within the broader sort of span of the history of Christianity, we have wrong conceptions of repentance, be it articulated theologically or through rituals or simply the way folk religions or the way simply we, we do our lives. And what are some of the wrong ways? Well, one way is perhaps simply to say that repentance entails an embrace of a set of ideas. And sometimes in the Adventist faith, that's inadvertently that's being emphasized. You know, you become a Christian if you affirm certain basic beliefs. This can feel confusing. As we rework our understanding of repentance, we can tweak the definition so repentance means we need to change our own minds in thought and action. But this isn't an instruction for you to change your own mind and start embracing certain habits. It's meant to be organic. We aren't supposed to conjure it, quote-unquote, because we know we should. Another way of misunderstanding repentance is that this is something that I can do on my own. Repentance, first and foremost, within scripture is a gift of God. Proper self-knowledge and seeing ourselves who we are in the light of the holiness and beauty of God is always a result, always something that comes from the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that I can manufacture. So uh, that is an important element or a potential misunderstanding of repentance than would be if I deny this pure gratuitousness of God's grace given to us, which then leads to 
repentance. Or perhaps there are in, in practice, I would say that very often misunderstandings of repentance are not codified in some theological statements, but they are expressed in the ways we actually live our Christian lives. So for instance, Ellen White has this beautiful chapter, one of the most beautiful chapters in Steps to Christ is precise on repentance. And she has this great story, a great definition of repentance, where she says that repentance includes sorrow for sin and turning away from it. That's as good a definition of repentance that you can give. Over and over, we come back to this truth. The truth that difficult growth or strength to handle heavy moments in our lives as children of God never have to be manufactured in our own power. The most consistent practice is to rest in Christ, being active in our surrender and learning. When we begin to believe and then live the reality that what moves us closer to a peaceful and purposeful life are gifts from God, it removes a heavy burden. Slowly, we can reconstruct an image of Christian existence unmarred by the frantic tightrope of earning salvation or letting go of habits and ideals that hurt us alone. Within this new model, we recognize the dangers of taking God out of practices he himself gave us for healing. It becomes works or it becomes superficial or it becomes limited in some way, or it even might lead to pride, right? Because if it's simply a humanly initiated endeavor, it will always fall short of truth. We will always, we cannot on our own really understand our true condition. Uh, so self-understanding and repentance that is that entails that self-understanding, true self-knowledge, is always a gift of grace. And that goes to the core of the Christian idea of the of God's prevenient or, or God or the prevenience of grace or God's prevenient grace. The idea that God is always first on the scene. And whatever happens, God has been at work for a very, very long time. And which leads us now obviously to this very interesting question and theme of the relationship between conversion and repentance. Um, I don't think that conversion is synonymous with repentance. Because we usually say when a person has repented, that is a sign of his or her conversion. But conversion can be a very long process. As a matter of fact, in a person's life, a person can actually undergo, is undergoing a process of conversion without even being aware that that is happening, right? So there's a change, a reorientation of the heart. A person is making some choices, is being attracted, let's say, suddenly to religious literature, or is being attracted to some higher values that are not yet connected with Christianity, but is a way of leaving, you know, kind of uh, a certain life behind. So conversion is a process that can take place for an extended period of time. But certainly, uh, repentance is a sign of genuine conversion, right? The, the fact that that you have realized your need for God, for Christ, for what Christ has done for you. I mean, the way Paul has a complete breakdown when he encounters Jesus and when he realizes what he has done and persecuted and others and Stephen, that comes as a result of, of divine grace. Now, we don't have obviously these 
manifestations of Christ in the way that Paul had. But the process is similar. So that is something that also needs to be emphasized. Paul's repentance is just one example found in Scripture. Not every repentance is a one-and-done experience. Sometimes it's an hourly, even moment-by-moment experience. Yeah, I think one way to look at it is to look at two types of repentance and then use examples. Certainly you have these moments, right, where people are confronted by the beauty, the power, the authenticity of Christ. And and Christ confronts them and gives them a call, and they immediately respond. Jesus comes to Matthew and tells him, follow me. I would imagine that that first act of following Jesus, the first step that he makes implicitly, certainly entails an act of repentance. He's repenting of his previous life or anything he might have had before. And so that repentance is now manifested in a concrete act of obedience. But then we see that the same way that conversion is a process, repentance is not, it's not like one thing that happens only once. If you look at the life of Peter from the very beginning when he repents and and follows Jesus to the many misunderstandings of Jesus that are taking place where he then has to repent to the final point of his denial of Jesus. So we see that in the instances of someone like Peter, the repentance is not so much a singular point in life. It is a way of living because every single day, Uh, God wants to lead us to a greater self-understanding of our needs, of our faults, of the potentials, of the promises he gives us. So repentance is a way of life, not a singular act. So I would say then we have these examples then where people instantaneously, they come, they repent, the, the thief on the cross, right? There we have an instantaneous repentance and the embrace of salvation. But the same way salvation is more than just getting into heaven and it's more than simply being forgiven, salvation is a deeper knowledge and understanding and and obedience. So true repentance as well is something that is basically a way of life. And as I said, we see this certainly in someone like Peter, and I imagine there are also other examples where we see this process of repentance taking place. Life is not consistent. This process of self-awareness and understanding may be punctuated by major life changes requiring us to live in a process of repentance. For some, repentance is a smooth transition. For others, it's an ongoing battle. However, as we've learned, we don't have to endure any of the battles alone. You can see this need for constant repentance. It's coming up in different places. I mean, certainly one of the most important and illustrious stories of this is what we find in Luke chapter 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? When he comes to the temple and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get, and so on and so forth. And you have the contrast. What is the contrast? The context of this tax collector and he, he doesn't even look up to heaven, right? But beats his breast, the scripture says. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And then Jesus says, well, I tell you that it is the latter one. It is the tax collector who went home justified before God. And that is such a good illustration because Jesus wants to tell us a sure sign that our Christian life has ossified, that it has gone to seeds, is when there is the absence of repentance, where the need for repentance is not present there anymore. That is a clear indication that something has gone awry in a, in a profound way. Let's be clear. Repentance is not living our lives in a hair shirt existing in a constant state of shame. Remember that repentance is the act of renewing our minds through daily choices. This renewal is the result of self-awareness, and that self-awareness requires humility. To repent is to humbly assess, staying aware of the parts of our thinking that harden our hearts against God, each other, and ourselves. In looking at the story of the tax collector and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were doing all the right things. They followed the rituals to a T, but they weren't humble. And they definitely weren't there to grow their perspective. The point is that everything that you're doing, the fact that you're fasting twice a week, you give a tenth, that those kind of religious practices should actually lead you into deeper repentance. So what use is it to you that you pray and read scripture and worship? And what happens as you do this is the hardening of your heart. Right? And this is something that Jesus often was talking about. To, you know, we have it in chapter Mark, chapter 8, where he warns his disciples, let not your hearts be hardened. And, and so spiritual practices or spiritual formation or discipleship, whatever term you want to use, the Christian life, if the engagement leads to a progressive or is paralleled by or accompanied by or with a hardening of the heart, then you know that we are in that this is a big the big problem that Jesus was confronting. So I think this is a good story that tells us that a genuine sign of of Christian growth into growth into Christ likeness is a progressive understanding of our own unworthiness which is again a growth into proper self-knowledge and self-understanding in the light of who God is. When considering how repentance aligns with our Christian walk, the answer is simple. Repentance must be an ingrained part of our Christianity. You cannot provide any definition of a Christian walk that would not imply a greater sense of our unworthiness in a general sense. The more we know Jesus, the more we are like Jesus, the more we are going to mourn everything that is at odds with his purposes and his character. Uh, the more we understand God, for instance, the holiness of God, the more we will understand how God absolutely, with a total vengeance, hates every sin. God cannot make peace with evil, and he cannot make peace with sin. And it is that understanding of God's unmitigated standing against every evil and every sin that helps us then to understand who we are, but also helps us to understand the depth of God's grace. Martin Luther basically said, if I can summarize his thought, he said, 
if you have a big sin, right? If you understand the extent of sinfulness, then you have a big God and then you have big grace. If you actually have a small sin, basically if you think that you're essentially okay, then your conception of God will be diminished and your notion of grace will be seriously thwarted. So I think the more you see Christ and the more you feel remorseful, you're actually entering into a space of growth because only then can you really understand the awesomeness and the extent of divine grace given to us. In this moment, I invite you to draw from our understanding of God that's been built throughout the series thus far. God is love, and from that love comes strong protection over his creation. The plead for us to understand the magnitude of sin isn't meant to prompt shame. It's meant to reveal grace. The larger our mistakes, the greater the relief when grace is extended. Think back to the identity episode. Shame has no function. It impedes growth and is actually an abusive counterfeit of self-awareness. When we are moved to repentance, ask Christ to hold every thought captive so your mind doesn't begin to spiral into shame. Sin in, in our lives, sometimes it is manifested in pride, in hubris, in narcissism, but very often sin and our fallenness is manifested in a destroyed sense of self-esteem or self-value. That is also something we need to repent of, right? And I think that uh, because we don't then understand what do I need to repent of? Again, repent, what does repent mean? It means proper self-knowledge in the light of proper God knowledge. Uh, and I think whenever we have a wrong understanding of repentance, it's always somehow driven with a wrong perception of God. Uh, we attempted to perceive God in a harsh way, in a harsh manner, as a kind of pedantic, supernatural being who is only watching for us to fail. And then we develop, people develop this hypersensitive consciousness, and they're constantly re repenting. And, and we know this from the life of Luther, right? He constantly had these ceremonies of self-flagellation and always going to repentance. But that repentance was a, if I can use an old term, English term, fleshly repentance. That's not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is a path of freedom, of liberation, of, of actually letting go of that shame. So I would say that whenever practices or understanding of repentance lead to an increased sense of shame and sense of unworthiness, where we are perpetually stuck in this world of diminishing our value or, or negative self-talk and however that is being manifested, that for sure has nothing to do with biblical repentance, which is about the path of liberation that leads to wholeness. To summarize this, you can never provide any definition of repentance that is not connected to the character of God and his purposes for our lives. Repentance is a heart matter. By that I mean our psychology, internal dialogue, and spiritual health. Our Christianity is meant to be a gift, not an obligation. As such, the conclusions and stages within our faith aren't supposed to be manufactured steps, items on a to-do list to accomplish, but an organic ripple effect. We know the catalyst to this ripple effect is to build deeper intimacy with God. So in order to experience repentance, 
What are some practical steps? You know, my response might sound oversimplified, and I'm almost hesitant to say it because this is something that Christians always say. But the only path to genuine repentance is uh, immersion in, in Scripture. And to have the kind of devotional practices that are more than just Bible reading, but really enable us to put ourselves in the presence of Christ every single, uh, let's say, morning, right? Why do I say this? Because I see a very strong correlation between the waning of my spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices and deep, immersive, meditative, imaginative, prayerful reading of Scripture when that goes by the waysides, that strongly correlates the hardening of my heart. I become less sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit, self, less self-aware of my, let's say, negative imprint on the world around me. Um, and inversely, when I do uh, dedicate significant chunk in reading the Gospels and, again, imaginatively, prayerfully, humbly uh, journaling or listening, I feel Jesus talking to me every single day. An example, this morning I read in John 21 uh, how Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And I, at the, while I was immersing myself, sitting around that fireplace, imagining myself being around the disciples there, I felt him asking me that question, and I had to repent. So, uh, of things where I don't feel that I love him as I should love him, because there's no other way. It's not something we can force, and it's not that every day something will happen, but it is this constancy, you know, what Søren Kierkegaard called the long obedience in the same direction in terms of these practices is the surest way. Because where, if I don't make myself available to God, if I don't open the space where I can commune with him, how do I think that I will have a more pliable heart and how will my mind be convicted of, of the needs for repentance that I have, of the need for repentance that I have? So this is just a very simple, perhaps, answer, but in terms of my personal life, the most potent and the most important one. John 15, 4 through 11 is Jesus giving us the blueprint of how to abide in him. To bring ourselves into alignment with God is to make ourselves available to Him. I struggle with this. I struggle to set aside dedicated time to meet with Him and will sometimes barrel along with my plans or my day without asking Him into it with me. But remember that making yourself available to God doesn't have to look the same way for everyone. Using Bible apps to listen to scripture as you're moving through your day, having one chapter to read for a week, working around a schedule that is accessible are all steps that can be taken. It's okay. We're all in the process of figuring it out. Repentance is a core principle of reconstruction. To deconstruct is easy when we get the hang of it, but choosing to rebuild requires us to let go of the clutter and hold on to central truths. Within the deconstruction and the reconstruction, we realize many of the factors that we thought were core truths become smaller in regards to the bigger picture or are disregarded completely. Most of all, we must recognize that repentance is a step towards growth, 
do not live in the deconstruction. Don't live in the sadness of what you did wrong, but in the new life that has been given to you. Reconstruction is meant to provide the building blocks to a better way of thinking that moves us forward. You've been listening to Faith Reconstructed. Each episode is hosted, written, and produced by me, Nicole Dominguez, edited by Katrina Simbaku, logo design and social media by Chelsea Ernina, tech and equipment support by Steve Husett and James Gigante, project support by Heather Moore, special thanks to the North American Division and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening. An Adventist Learning Community Podcast.